Welcome to the Birthing Instincts Podcast. I'm Dr. Stuart Fishbein, community-based practicing obstetrician and longtime advocate for birth choices. And I'm Bliss Young, a licensed midwife. Join us in our conversational style podcast where we talk about everything birth. Sometimes we laugh, sometimes we cry, but we're happy that you're here. So here we go. Hello, my friend. Hello, my friend. Happy birthday. Thank you. That was so sweet. Your your post was so touching and everybody's love on my birthday. It's I don't I don't really make that much about deal about my birthday. I like to, you know, do nice things for myself that day, but um I couldn't even remember how old I was. I had to ask my boyfriend <laughs> if I was turning 53 or 52. Um but you know, when you start here like think people keep reaching out and saying, you know, hi and sweet wishes. It's always really it is really nice so I appreciate all the love yeah I'm a lot older than you (laughs) (laughs) not that much I guess but still it seems like a lot so (laughs) you're otherwise good um yeah last we spoke moving into my new place on Friday I'm officially back on call um my schedule's getting full um I'll be in Santa Barbara without travel for probably the next year um so I'm I'm feeling excited about really like grounding in and um for those of you who don't know Santa Barbara is a pretty small town and they have um a beautiful concert hall called um called the bowl it's an outdoor um venue and I went to see a concert last night and I could walk from my my home to this place so that is kind of cool coming from LA and being in such a big city where you had to drive everywhere and everything took over an hour. Um, it's fun to be in a, in a sweet little town that, you know, I can, I can walk or ride my bike almost everywhere. So I'm excited about that. Good. Yeah. Good. So you? Uh, I, I just want to, uh, uh, about, about my apartment hunting. Uh, my daughter is in Manhattan and she's looking for a new apartment and um, you know, she needs somebody to be her guarantor. So she uses my, my application, my tax returns and stuff like that. Well, the place that she's applied for recently, we're not going to get because apparently they need you to make 80 times, you have to show on your income tax that you make 80 times the monthly rent. Eight oh? Eight zero. What? And so, I, you know, I'm semi-retired. I don't make that kind of money anymore. And, you know, the rent, the rent for a studio apartment, a, a literal studio, a tiny little studio, it's going to be about $3,300. And so that means that I'd have to show that I made like $260,000 a year just for her to rent an apartment. And her and her rent for that little place is more than 60% the rent uh, the of my mortgage. I know. <laughs> Not my house. It's crazy. Um, She'll figure it out. She may have to, you know, she really didn't want to have a roommate because she's had bad experiences with roommates, but she's probably going to have to have a roommate in in New York right now. Yeah. So you, you had surgery since the last time we talked. So how are you doing? How's everything? It's healing slower and it's a little bit weird. I'm going to see the uh, eye doctor tomorrow for follow-up and I, you know, I'm starting to be able to see again through the eye. It's just oil. I'm looking through oil and, and like bloody oil. So it's very hazy and dark, but I can still see. But when I look at something with my good eye and then I switch to my other eye, it's smaller and tilted. So I'm just hoping that I put my eyeball back in the right way and they didn't like get to screw it all the way in, you know, like a light bulb. It didn't go quite all the way in. 
I know. I don't know. I, I'm sure that it's partly distorted because I'm looking through oil, but I don't remember this from the other time. So we'll we'll see. But it is uh, it's sort of annoying. It's a little more weepy than it was. It's not infected or anything, and and uh, just going to just take time. And I'm off to uh, in two days. I'm off to Milwaukee uh, to teach, and so that'll be a bit of a struggle uh, dealing with this, especially with bright lights and stuff. It's really sort of bothersome. Um, but other than that, it's okay. And then um, I did a podcast with, it's called the Natural Birth Talk Podcast. Natural Birth is one word. People can find that. And I talked about twins. So I did that. And then some exciting things coming up. I'm going to be on a Twitter space event tomorrow, which will, you know, I, I will throw a link to. It'll be live tomorrow evening um, with a whole bunch of people talking about I believe it's vaccines related to pregnancy and that sort of and that sort of thing. And then I got a really exciting little invitation from uh, some people may know who these people are. Uh, Turning Point USA. Uh, Turning Point USA is uh, organizations on most campuses. It's a conservative organization. I think Charlie Kirk is the uh, founder of it. And they're going to fly me to Phoenix next month to be interviewed in the studio. Oh, cool. So exciting too i think a lot of this is coming from some of the exposure i'm getting on other people's podcasts and also some of the instagram reels that i put up recently like the one about baby sawyer which was you know really in our world it didn't go viral because i hate that term anyway because it's just sort of a bad term when you think about what we're talking about going viral but um it got a lot of hits more than just about any reel i've ever posted uh because it hit a nerve with people right. so you about go to my instagram feed and you'll find the one uh, that was posted a few days ago about baby sawyer um that's great i did want to say um that we had um had planned and kind of teased to have dr shavir on today to talk about statistics but he had a conflict and so he will be coming on but um today we have another guest yeah and rebecca rebecca walker is a uh unlicensed you know sort of indigenous midwife in Northern Minnesota. And I was having a conversation with her yesterday about an event she's planning for next year. And you and you probably know about that too, because I know she reached out to you as well. And uh, we just had a great conversation and I just knew that Dr. Chavira couldn't make it. So I invited her on. And so she's you know coming in to pinch it. And great. I think you guys will really enjoy what she wants to talk about, which is some of the things that are going on in her state. Uh, we hear a lot about California because Bliss and I know California. And that, but we don't hear a lot about the Midwest. So she's going to give us some stuff, updates on what's going on in Minnesota. Oh. Um, before we get to the, I think you have a, a letter that you want to read. But before we get to that, I just have one kind of a silly question about Instagram. You know, I follow a lot of people on Instagram and so does everybody listening, I'm sure. And sometimes we have these influencers who are people that either we know or that we respect. And they, they will put a post up with a picture of them like standing on a beach or in their kitchen. Um, and it's a full body picture of them. And um, they're talking about personal growth and solitude and living, raising their children as a single parent or something like that. But then there's this beautiful picture of them. And I always wonder like, okay, so who took the picture? <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Uh, so someone, I, I don't know, do they use a stand? Do they have a, professional photographer do it do they how do they do that what do you think well you have you you have a photo shoot and you have a bunch of different lifestyle pictures so that you can 
you know, use them for posts and stuff like that when you need to, I think most often, but yes, I have, I have that feeling sometimes like, um, our, our good friend, Kimberly Summers, who's just, a, she's just beautiful. And her writing also is so beautiful, but there's times when she's like pictures of her on the beach in her bathing suit. And I'm like, who took that picture? <laughs> Does she set up a camera or is her daughter doing it? Cause they're really good photographs too. Yeah, so, no, that's the same. That's what I'm saying is they're great yeah. photographs. Yeah, uh, yeah. You and I don't get pictures like that of, you know, <laughs> well, I mean, you're very photogenic, but nonetheless, it's just, you know, I, it was sort of ironic that I think they're talking about, you know, I mean, they write beautifully in their, in the, in the text of what they're talking about. And it's a lot of times it's about solitude and your alone time and all that stuff. And then somebody had to take the picture. So I just thought it was funny. Uh, so I have, I have a couple of things that we could go over, but I think we should start with the, the letter that you have, and then we'll bring Rebecca on. So why don't you just read that and we'll go from there. So I just want to tell you guys that this is a little bit long, um, but I tried to like figure out where it would be a good point to read it to you. And it's so well done uh, that I'm just going to read the whole thing. And so how I came about it is um, our friend of the podcast, Robin Lim, who um, came on the, the wife from Bali, said that every midwife and doula should read this letter. And so when I started to read it, I just thought it was so perfect. Um, so this is... Um, Dula Nicola Goodall, and she's talking about her experiences since 2020. And the title of the letter or the article is um, Why I'm Taking a Break. So she says, March 2020 arrived and I was at the tail end of caring for three families at the very beginning of the journey for two others. I was working as a birthing year doula in Edinburgh, supporting families in a non-clinical way during pregnancy, birth, and in their 40 days postpartum. Doula. Um, I have lived and loved families welcoming new ones in Scotland for over 20 years and in South London previous to this for 10 years. Much of my learning comes from traditional midwifery. We take this job very seriously. I immediately declared doulas to be an emergency service, receiving the experiences from these families. I knew it was the right thing. Locally, families were left with almost no maternity care. In times past, this would have been soaked up by family and community care. We don't live like that anymore, especially in cities, and we certainly no longer have this knowledge on the whole. I live in Leith, L-E-I-T-H, Stu. Do you know how to pronounce that? No. Okay, I'm sorry if I'm butchering it. Um, the Brooklyn Brixton of Edinburgh. Huge working class population with sprinkling of middle class and cool incomers. At one point, we had most densely populated area in Europe. It's where the term train spotting origin originated. Left train station being in the spot in the 80s to consume heroin, gentrif gentrification, slowly squeezing the life from the area. Women were left with only sporadic phone calls from midwives. If they were lucky, perhaps a scan, but no bloods and no in-persons care at all. No idea about checking blood pressure or urine at home. Almost impossible to get anyone on the phone if you had concerns. In contrast, the wealthier areas seem to have much better services. I attended a home birth across the city that summer with great midwifery support. Birthrights informed us our health trust was the worst hit in the country in 2020. Half of our midwives were sheltering at home and not working at all. The other half were right at the edge of a strike. 
we understand how after years of being worked to the bone, you decide that you would rather not risk your life for your employer. Our GP services was almost inaccessible. The families were experiencing dangerous, unusual complications from COVID, yet were only offered phone calls at best. I supported many midwife sisters at breaking point. No midwifery care for pregnancy and postpartum. They decided to prescribe giant bottles of Oromorph, which I think is morphine, to mothers post-surgery locally. Mothers through Lyft, gosh, I know I'm saying that right. Lyft were literally swigging on liquid heroin all day long. Almost all had surgery, inductions, and surgical intervention that has not abated. I've changed my language and altered obstetricians to obstetric surgeons, labor wards to surgical ward, vaginal exams, vaginally penetrative exam. Let's call a spade a spade. It had the dystopian feel of let's keep them quiet. It seemed that there had been no dosing instructions as a, hair, as a high heroin use in this area is unheard of. Due to Scotland's issues with opiates, having access to them previously was usually a big process involving many staff and locks and keys. We've changed our mind here that off-prescription opiate use is a health issue, not a legal one anymore. anymore. The news now is full of talk legalizing all drugs for personal use, acknowledging that most are medicating their trauma. I have no doubt that that's what's happening here with these mothers. We did have midwifery and obstetric cover at the birth of our busy city maternity unit, albeit only accessible by the mother alone at first. It was providing um, by someone head to toe PPE who was also traveling through a global emergency. The mother was only able to access care, be admitted to the labor ward and have her birthing partner support her if her cervix was deemed open enough following a mandatory vaginal penetrative exam. We put two-year student midwives into fully qualified roles, fully traumatizing them also. With not nearly enough doulas to meet the needs, we realized we needed to act swiftly. We organized and formed Birth Choices Scotland. We met weekly online, no charge, and offered free 15-minute support calls. We started monthly doula training groups to get the numbers we needed to keep moving. We started to petition the NHS. We took this all the way to the top where the coal-hearted pin pusher told our human rights lawyer they must agree to disagree. Lawyer repeated again and again that it actually, um, that it's actually a matter of law. Said pen pusher didn't seem to care less about her staff, the folk accessing the services or our petition. It was awful. Our first minister tweeted that you could have your second birth partner during that meeting. She was very vocal about her own miscarriage at the time, and we realized approaching our politicians was way more effective and ticked off a victory. Folks were birthing free by choice or being pushed into a corner, so we began Friday hour week where people could come and ask questions and seek support. This was also without charge. I received a very angry and offensive email in all caps from a midwife during this time, so angry and offensive I considered reporting her, but felt too overwhelmed to bring this forward. It was no time for trolling. For the records, I have zero desire to be clinical midwife in this system, zero. I was also bereaved, still working, and just low energy to deal with it all. The ambulance service was suspended, and if an ambulance couldn't be found at the time, we sent armed police. That's right, 
armed police. They drive faster and have more first aid training. Armed police are not safe for all families and they know little about childbirth and newborns. Murder investigations were started when there were no when um, when there were COVID complications. Police were also traumatized from not being trained to be helpful in these situations. For months, I listened to women and their support across the globe on my phone. I listened to women free birthing on the loo in, um, sorry, in tooting, wondering if a baby would ever come out. I listened to another woman in her apartment who was laboring for days, unable to get any medical or midwifery support. I spoke with terrified young fathers helping them petition for what they need, reassuring them, giving them ideas. Um, I supported perimenopausal women bleeding so heavily. Some of them were hospitalized, many, many having blood transfusions. One couldn't get a hold of her doctor and then was chastised for letting it get so bad that she might have died from blood loss. All the while, doctors are actively saying that COVID and COVID vaccine is not affecting wombs. We now have data, data suggesting otherwise. Um, we have strong ethos around journaling. We got busy encouraging women to write and capture their experiences. Women's ex experiences during big world events have been overshadowed throughout human history. This pandemic should be different. Following the traditional midwifery model of being earth keeper and activist, as well as birth keeper, we began making old plague rem remedies using thieves oil, fire cider, and sending every third one out for free to um, carer or NHS worker, along with boxes for our midwives, doctors, and loved ones. We were so busy with herbal remedies during the whole pandemic. Much of what we observed going on seemed to respond very well to herbal medicine. She talks about her own experience with some loss, which I'll skip over. I'll link the whole thing if you guys want to read it. In my tradition, you do not come to the birthing room or the postnatal room if you are struggling yourself. If your cup is empty, you cannot fill someone else's. I had a moment delivering food for a postnatal mom traumatized by the system and a generic pandemic experience. When I seriously considered kicking a young and extremely rude doctor in the shins, I realized I had to stop for a while. Traditionally, the womb is seen as a container that can catch other things, not just babies, including other folks' grief and trauma. We are not used to this philosophy in the UK, trudging off work through our heavy bleeds, divorces, illnesses, trauma, losses, and other challenges to support folks with open wombs. I wrap up with the families I was supporting and declared that doula stop shut. The challenges and weights on women in general over these times has been especially hard. We continued with our doula preparation training as it was so needed and had some of the most profound circles of my life. I continued to uh, enrich my own self-care, meditation, journaling, weekly therapy, qigong, yoga, walking, swimming, more swimming, silence, being alone, praying, more praying, dancing, baking bread, planting in a garden. I felt like it was impossible to survive without all of this in order. My day would consist of hours of these things and then a shorter time on the computer and phone and back to them again. We organized a workshop on uh, radical rest and we joined together. A therapist sister of mine shared that it wasn't just the internal factors we were dealing with as careers and the external factors that took us over the edge. End of the world, endless news cycles, TikTok feeds, vaccines and gender debates, war, climate change, racism, and the trauma 
it begets all sending folk to fight or flight and overcapacity. We're dealing with the long-term effects of all of this now, of being in that adrenaline state continually. These are folks following their calling, an almost impossible urge to help out, a tugging at the hair by the moon, something hard to resist. There was no um, complete stopping, yet being squeezed by so much with no literal space to breathe. Garber Mate um, captures this so well in his work when he reads obituaries of folks who were helpers. So helpful, it killed them. So what next? I think it will take mo most of us years to recover. Many perhaps change forever. I'm resting now from family support until I feel robust enough to dive back in. We are in a weird inner space where our systems are, are in slow demolition and not fit for purpose for the employees or the those accessing services. Yet the systems are still trying to carry out the ways and practices they always used to without families and communities knowledge of how to handle our bodies and all that they do that we used to hold. I can see families and communities rushing to fill the gaps. I also see the valuable role of doulas really shock absorbing a bridge between whatever was and whatever is to be. There are, um, there are mopping up areas where folks are abandoned, access to good herbal medicine, ritual, almost endless support, hooking up with resources, better picture spiritual talk, old medicines like talking and massaging and other options. Red tent, I'm almost done. Um, red tent doulas try to foster a family and support environment as we can see the drop-off rate has been huge over this time in our world of doulas. We cannot meet the demands we have, especially in marginalized communities. Many of our numbers have become so exhausted and unwell that they are also resting. We've welcomed an awful lot of exciting teachers, doctors, midwives into our midst. People are finding other ways to follow their calling. While, lots, while we have lots coming through, there are still not quite enough. Those still working have a huge load. It's the first time I've seen my listed experiences like this from 2020 and years after. I wonder at the strength of women and what they endure. We need to do better. I encourage you to write your list. Look at your coping mechanisms. How can you support each other better in community and family? I encourage you to support your local, local doulas. They are literally holding it all together. Beautiful, right? Tragic, but beautiful but I, that you took the time to write it down. Yeah, and I think that this really does represent the stress not only on doulas, but also on midwives around the world. And so um, I thought, given that we talk a lot about how um, 2020 was so difficult and how our our uh, government failed us, but globally, I think that that is really the case. So to hear about someone's experience from another country, I thought was really helpful. Yeah, I mean, the the whole thing was complete chaos. And I think that's sort of by design. She said something very poignant that I wrote down. She said, if your cup is, if yeah. your cup is empty, you cannot fill someone else's cup. And I think that 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 is sort of what's going on in the world right now, keeping us tied up with conflict and distractions, like you said, climate, gender, war, vaccines, lockdowns, all this stuff keeps you from focusing on all the, the things that are happening, whether that is loss of your freedoms or central bank digital currency or uh, uh, digital IDs or uh, restrictions on your movement or all the things that they're trying to do for this one world or one world government. This sums it up in a, in a, in a way 
just about birth and what they've done to us in the healthcare system. And that's going to be kind of the theme of what we're going to talk about with Rebecca, too, is we're going to talk a little bit about what's going on in the hospital and the medical system and why is it so bad and why are they doing the things they're doing? And I just, yeah, I think people need to like digest what you said. It was long. I mean, it was, you know, that was about 10 minutes long. And <laughs> I hope that people will keep their attention through it because there's so much valuable stuff in there about what we're all going through, whether it's healthcare or just family or anything else, you need to stay focused on um, on those people in your line of sight, those people that you love, the people that you care for, and you need to put out more energy in those. and And it, it's fun to tweet and to and to post memes about silly stuff and the president falling down or saying dumb things or making up stories. Yeah, that's funny and stuff like that. But it really it really is a distraction. The whole thing is a distraction. From what's what's really going on look over here pay no attention to that man behind the curtain that's what's going right. on right well thank you for letting me read that it's your podcast <laughs> so we have a new sponsor bliss dr Lindsay has been our friend for a really long time she's been a birth colleague and her company birthfit is focused on supporting women throughout the motherhood transition with general strength and conditioning programs for preconception pregnancy and postpartum isn't that awesome? Like any phase of the journey, you can use their programs. They even have a B community where you can go to if you're trying to conceive or if you know you want to in the next one to three years, which is awesome. They have a lying in program, which is in the first you know, beginning of postpartum. Like what they say is even a day after you can start to get into this. It's 30 days, one video a day, less than 10 minutes that focus on reconnecting and honoring your body in the immediate postpartum period. They use breathing exercises, visualization, belly massages. So cool. And then they have an extended program called Postpartum Program. It's a 12-week program focused on building a base level of general physical fitness with simple lifts, tempo work, and of course, breath work. And all of the work that they do um, requires no or minimal equipment. Um, so you can do it right out of your home. Um, and then of course they have the prenatal program. They have a, a basic 30 day program where no equipment is necessary. I guess you can kind of test out and see if you like their their vibe. And then they have a more extensive pro program, the prenatal training program, which is a full-term strength and conditioning program. Um, I mean, wow. Yeah. I, I've, no, I've known Lindsay for a really long time. She's a, she was a chiropractor in LA before, before they fled and moved to Texas. <laughs> uh, anyway, we, we support them wholeheartedly because this kind of a program is great for our, our clients and most of our listeners. Yeah. Um, so you go to birthfit.com. That's B-I-R-T-H-F-I-T.com. Use the code INSTINCTS1, all caps, INSTINCTS1, with the number, not the not one, but the number, to get a discount on the basics prenatal program, or use code INSTINCTS2 to get a discount on the basic postpartum program. All right? So we love BirthFit. Uh, it's OB and midwife approved. That's right. And right. please support them. And congratulations on your pregnancy, Lindsay. Thanks for joining the team. Welcome to the Birthing Instincts neighborhood. Elizabeth sent this. She says, you got to love this take-home note from the hematologist that who he when they gave it to me today so I wouldn't forget anything. And then she she talks about it, she shows a picture of the take-home note and it says in handwriting, it says, delivery. Uh, mode of delivery is up to the obstetrical team. Planned delivery. 
So this was the hematologist's perception of how birth goes. <laughs> the motor is up to the obstetrical team. And she, <laughs> yeah. Including early coercion, RE induction, and o OB as decision makers. So that's really right. cool. So hi. Hi, Rebecca. Hi. Thank you for waiting. I had a really long thing I wanted to read. So um, I appreciate your patience. And I'm so excited to see your beautiful face. Oh, well, thanks. Me too. This is like my first podcast. And I'm pretty sure I don't need to be on any other one after this. Because this is just amazing. <laughs> Oh, I listen to you guys all the time in the morning, in the afternoon, in the middle of the night. So I love it. Yeah, thank you for saying that. Uh, listen, I want to introduce you appropriately. So let me do that. Um, you're a traditional midwife, wife, mother, farmer, gardener, herbalist, hunter, gatherer, and rule breaker, <laughs> which is part of the reason you're on the podcast today after our conversation <laughs> yesterday. Um, my love for birth started as a child when my cat gave birth. I watched my aunt birth my cousin when I was 15. After that, I would sit for hours watching a birth story on mm -hmm. TV. You know, I was on an episode of that, by the way. Did you know that? We were friends back then. What's that? Oh, even <laughs> then. Yeah, yeah it was a, a, a woman being induced, actually, at Cedars when I was a res I was a, attending at Cedars. She signed up wow. to be on the show. It, it was when the very first, like, first or second year of the season. Anyway, she goes, uh, you go on. I always knew I would be a mother and never feared birth. I had to fight for unmedicated birth and peace when I birthed my two children in the hospital. I had no idea midwifery even existed. After traumatic hospital birth with my son and another not so bad, but not so good hospital birth with my daughter, I was left with many questions and much healing that needed to take place. Several years passed and many animals birthed their young on our farm. As I watched them, I knew there had to be a different way for humans. They were so peaceful and most births just happened on their own. By the way, you live in a farm in what, Northern Minnesota, right? Correct. Yeah, okay. That's when I started researching birth options and soon found midwifery. I started schooling in 2019 and I never looked back. I knew it was my calling. I try to fearlessly defend a woman's right to choose where and how she gives birth. I work for women, not the law. I work for women, not the law. I consider myself a radical midwife asking women to take responsi radical responsibility for their pregnancy, birth, and postpartum transformation. I have no intention on being licensed or following any political ruling on birth. I am currently working on my international midwifery degree. I plan to return to Haiti in the future. That's where we first met, uh, you and I, um, volunteering at Mother uh, Mama Baby Haiti, as that is where my heart lays, lies and my dreams become reality. Right. Yeah. So Welcome, welcome, welcome. I love that. I, I choose, what was it about the law? How does it go? Oh, uh, for women, not the law. Yeah, work for women, not the law. Yep. Yeah. Good. Yeah, so but tell us a, for having me. But tell us a little bit about um, what you're doing up in Northern Minnesota, and then a, a little bit about Haiti maybe, and then a little bit about what you're hoping to see happen next June and then yeah. get into some of the stuff that we got into yesterday, okay? <laughs> Funny how you start talking and things just start coming out of the woodwork. That's what happened, right? <laughs> I think as like midwives and birth workers, we just start telling stories and it just, I don't know, we just have a lot to tell. Um, <laughs> yeah, so I work um, in a rural setting um, in a maternity care desert. Um, there are women in our area that are an hour and a half to two and a half hours from a hospital. Um, there's a lot of births 
or I'm sorry, a lot of hospitals that have just stopped doing birth altogether, um, or they're taking what they call a break from doing births. Um, they're not really letting people in their community know a lot of the hospitals that are taking the breaks anyway. So it's an interesting scenario that we have going on. Um, one of the things I talk to my clients about is what's the closest hospital and do you know for sure if they do birth? Um, just because I'm anywhere between two to two and a half hours from my house when I'm doing births. And so I'm not always necessarily familiar with what's going on in their area. So I ask them to do a little bit of research and then I do my own as well. Um, but it, it, it's, it's an interesting area. I don't know anything different. I've, this is where I started midwifery. This is where I've been practicing. Um, so for me, it, it feels normal to have these things happening as unnormal as they might be. There's midwives down in the twin cities who can't believe that we travel more than a half an hour to go to births. You know, it's just unheard of that like, what are you guys doing up there? Um, we've had midwife, one midwife in particular that was talking about moving to the area. And she just said, you guys live in a food desert, maternity care desert. Like, I can't move there. I can't get a fresh avocado. <laughs> so it's just. Yeah, this is a common reason why, you know, probably 80 to 90% of the counties in the United States have no maternity care. They have no obstetricians, right. no uh, hospitals that are doing Hospitals that might have been doing some deliveries are closing, um, making it even more difficult. People have to travel hundreds of miles sometimes to to find a maternity hospital because of the, again, the chaos that's been created in a system that isn't working, that is just getting propagated further and further. That that so you, you know you are you are a lifeline. People like you um, in these maternity care deserts like in northern Minnesota. And we have, we have, you know, we're in California. We have them here in California. We have areas yeah. that are underserved. No, because nobody wants to live there. Or yeah, it's, it's so interesting. There isn't enough business to, uh, go ahead, sorry. Correct. And that's what it is too. It, it's interesting that we, you know, we took the whole birthing realm and decided everybody needs to be in the hospital. This is where this is the safest place to be. And then all of a sudden we're just not going to do birth in the hospital anymore. I mean, if you take Minnesota and you break it into four sections, the whole Northern fourth of Minnesota um, in some spots, even like the, the whole Northern third of Minnesota, there is nowhere to birth your baby. So you're driving two hours to get, I mean, you can drive from the Canadian border to the bottom of Minnesota in about six hours. Okay, so those top two hours, there's nowhere to go. It, you either drive two hours to get to a hospital that will do your birth, um, or you hire a midwife. And so the midwives in our area, which are very few, if anybody is thinking about moving anywhere to do birth, please come to Minnesota as a midwife because we do not have enough midwives. Um, you know, we're driving, like I said, two to three, sometimes three and a half hours to go to a birth to help these women who don't want to be in the hospital setting. Um, we have hospitals in this area that have a 70% C-section rate. They are not doing vaginal birth after a cesarean. They're not doing vaginal twins. They're not doing vaginal breach, breach birth. Um, and we talked a little bit about that yesterday. Um, and we can, you know, get into well, that. I, wanna, I would just, I just want to say something when I was a uh... Uh, a resident, I did a rotation in Alaska. Uh, I spent some time out in Bethel, Alaska. And then the Native American Health Service there, um, which took care of all the uh, indigent, not, not indigent, that's not the word, 
indigenous. In, indigenous, thank you. That is, <laughs> indigenous people that lived in uh, all over in the small villages all over Alaska that could only get to literally by by small plane, uh, landing on a dirt strip in the middle of the night, and it was a little hairy. And we did that sometimes, but but um, what they did, and I don't know if the policy still exists now, but in those days they took every pregnant woman from those villages at 36 weeks and they flew them to a dormitory in Anchorage. Mm -hmm. Yep. And and they they thought that this was going to be better for them, taking them away from their family, away from their traditions, away from their other children, and housing them in a place so they could give birth in a hospital setting, which probably you know had better numbers than many hospitals do. But but still, this was their solution to the problem, as opposed to finding you know maybe supporting midwives and putting people out there and you know, and giving more people pilot's licenses so they could fly around and help these people in these smaller yeah. villages. So it was just, it was just, I just always thought it was absurd, even, you know, back when I was not Dr. Stu, mm -hmm. away from their home and putting them just because you don't have enough caregivers, which is an issue. So, I mean, what, what can be done? I honestly don't know. It's funny because when I talk to different people who work in the hospital setting, different nurses and whatnot, um, I'm told that the reason that these hospitals are taking breaks or that they're no longer doing birth is because ACOG made the recommendation, I know you guys have talked about this before, about um, having an anesthesiologist readily available. And so these hospitals are thinking that somebody on site 24-7, and because they don't want to pay somebody to be on site 24-7, they're just not doing birth. So they're taking the options away from women. You know, there's, I love home birth. There's a lot of women that love home birth, but there's women that don't. They want to be in a hospital. They feel safer in a hospital. And unfortunately, they don't have that choice in a lot of the places that they're living. Yeah, this so. is an example. This is an example of what's called stage one thinking. Um, ACOG put that out. They actually changed the word readily to immediately available. And they backed oh. off. Again. They, they backed off again because they caused so much problem. But it's like, it's like, when you have a certain number of people all thinking alike, sitting in the same room, deciding these things, didn't anyone think to them saying, by saying that, we're going to screw all these small hospitals. Now, for all I know, maybe that was their purpose. <laughs> yeah, you have to look, you have to think that not everybody can be completely stupid. So sometimes when they do these things that sound completely stupid, there's a bigger agenda behind them all. Right. And the agenda might have been to squeeze the small hospitals out of business. They don't care about yeah. the women who are pregnant. They don't care about the children who might need an emergency room or whatever else. If they don't do pediatrics or they don't do uh, uh, obstetrics in their hospital, that's not their concern. Their concern is that the big hospitals are lobbying to make it harder on the smaller hospitals or the independent practitioners. This is what's been going on for, for decades. Right, right. So I um, we just did the maternal health care panel here in Santa Barbara, which is um, hosted by the ICANN leaders here. And they've been doing it for the last six years um, to help overturn the ban that we had at our local hospital, because there's only really one hospital in Santa Barbara. And you have to drive 40 minutes, which compared to what you're talking about, <laughs> makes us sound like little babies. You know, you have to drive 40 minutes in either direction to get to another hospital. So they are the only hospital here. Um, and they just overturned this ban, I think partially because of the pressure that the community put on them and, you know, said that this is really not acceptable. We were talking about these um, maternity deserts and we were talking about that midwives are the answer. Midwives are the ones 
just like you who are willing to drive two and a half hours to go and support a woman, whereas a lot of OBs and stuff are not going to fill that gap. Um, even, you know, they're just, they're just not. So um, world, the World Health Organization, I think it was in 2020, said that we are 900,000 midwives short to be able <laughs> to be able to meet the demand of what's needed globally. And, you know, you're, you're, you're a traditional midwife, but you did talk about going to school, right? You went to school. Yeah. I, I went to the Matrona, but I also did hands-on training with another midwife. So a lot of it was, you know, just your hands-on and then your book reading. There is nowhere in Northern Minnesota, if I wanted to actually go to a school, like walk through the doors, I would have had to relocate about three and a half hours from where I live in order to do that. And that would have been to become a CNM. Yeah. So, right. Yeah. Right. And, you know, I didn't get a chance to talk about this when they were having the dialogue um, at this event. But, you know, they were saying like, you've got, you know, we were talking specifically about um, brown and black midwives, BIPOC midwives to help um, mm -hmm. support what's happening with the racial disparities and all of that. And, and I, you know, I wanted to bring up that, like, if you want to become a midwife, a licensed midwife, there's no, um, we can't get student loans. No, nope. like, this is all coming from the goodness of our heart, like trying to figure out how to get through schooling. And if you are um, low income or if you don't have a partner, you're a single mom or something like that. Like if you really start to think about what it takes for us to be able to do this work because we're so passionate about it and that we have this, we have this massive shortcoming in our maternal healthcare system and midwives could be the answer, but there's absolutely no support in helping these midwives get licensed. You know, it's just like, you, I think what you were saying, Stu, this like stage one thinking is like, we have the ability to be able to meet this crisis and we're not stepping up as a community to support midwives and being able to do that. So I am, I mean, what a beautiful thing that you're doing. And I know that this is coming from the depths of your heart and passion because why else would you? Know? <laughs> why else? Well, and, and the other thing too, guys, is that, is that just in the, in the story that you read before Rebecca came on, mm -hmm. I mean, we're, it, you know, we're thinking that, well, if we could only get the hospitals to, to maybe help us. But the truth is, <laughs> is that every time something gets more dire, the hospitals get worse. Yes. Not better. Yes. It, it, yeah, go ahead, Rebecca. It, I mean, it's it's insane. I was sharing with you yesterday about um, I had a mom uh, back in February who she had she actually hemorrhaged. It was about 45 minutes to an hour after her baby was born. So it came out of the blue out of nowhere. Um, and she actually went into shock, called 911. The ambulance was there within 10 minutes and they they first off refused to take the baby in the ambulance. They, no matter how much I argued, they would not keep the mother and baby together. They took off without her. Um, I followed them with the baby with my assistant to what I thought was the hospital was where we should have been going. And I'm on the phone with the hospital and I'm following the ambulance. We wind up getting to the airport and I'm arguing with the doctor because they will not see my client in that hospital because they're no longer doing birth. And I'm trying to explain that she already gave birth. She hemorrhaged. She's in shock. She needs blood. She needs support like right now. He's nope. She's going to get life lighted. The life flight was going to be about a 40 minute life flight. 
And I got out of my car, went into the ambulance. She actually had come to, they had her hooked up to all the things. And I sat and had a conversation with the EMTs. Like, we are not going to sit here and wait for this life flight. We are going to get in the vehicle. Like, I'm going to get back in my vehicle. I'm going to follow you 50 minutes to the closest hospital because by the time we get there, she's going to get care sooner than getting on this life flight. But the hospital who could have helped her, who could have given her blood, who could have done all the things, refused to take her for the simple fact that they're no longer doing birth. She could have died on that runway. And I told the doctor, we will sue you. We will sue you personally. We will sue your entire hospital. And they did not care. So I followed the ambulance 50 minutes to the nearest hospital because they would not take any medication from me. They didn't even know how to spot a hemorrhage. So I had to explain to them before getting back in my vehicle what to look for if the bleeding started again. And if it did, they needed to pull over right away and get me in the ambulance with them because they had no clue what they were doing, which isn't their fault. You know, they're doing the best they can. Element's a tasty electrolyte drink. They've been sponsoring us for a while with everything you need and nothing you don't. That means a lot of salt and, and with no sugar, as you like to say, none of the BS, just like us. It's formulated to help anyone with their electrolyte needs. It's perfectly suited to folks following a keto, low carb, paleo diet, but not for our pregnant patients who shouldn't be on any of those. <laughs> okay. Uh, but it's good for pregnant women. It's good for postpartum women. It's good for uh, birth workers. It's good for people who are outside working out. Summer's coming on. It's going to be hot and sweaty. Yeah. And it's grapefruit season. I just got my box. Yeah. Well, not only is it grapefruit season, but but they also comes in a bunch of other flavors. Yeah. Watermelon, citrus, orange, raspberry, raw, your favorite. Mango chili. Lemon and chocolate raspberry. Lemon course. habanero. Lemon habanero. What is a habanero anyway? It's a it's a spicy chili. Okay. Yeah. There you go. You know, the other day I was at a very long birth and we went to get some electrolytes for the mom to see if we could help her with some of the things that she was dealing with. And we, every one of the birth workers that was there had some too. We're like, we all need it. Let's all have some element. Yeah. And, it, com and it comes in a little packet so that you, you don't have any waste. Right. Like Great. throwing bottles away and stuff like that. You can just use it in your reusable container. We love that. That sort of thing. So we love that. So you go to drink element. That's drink L-M-N-T dot com backslash birthing instincts and you get a free sample pack with any order great thanks element thank you didn't you say something about you offered to give them the medication but because yes. you weren't licensed yes. or something tell that they, story they, they wanted me to write a prescription for the medication and i said first of all it's not a prescription medication and second of all i can't write a prescription and they said well then we can't take it so that's why I had to follow them and I had to give them all the signs of what to look for because they wouldn't take this simple medication from me and they had no other medications on board to give her. So it's, I mean. They're, they're all Sergeant Schultz's for people that get the reference. I mean, they, they see nothing, they know nothing. They, they, they can't do anything. And I, you're right. I mean, the individual person probably wanted to help, but their policy and their, their employer are going to say, you, you, these are the rules you have to follow. And there's no thinking outside yes, the box. And who wants, Yes, to, I, I know that there are people that, that need to support their family and have to work in a system like that, but God damn it. Do you really want to spend your life? Yeah. You know, subservient in, in that role, not being able to, and that doctor, I mean, look at, she wasn't pregnant anymore. Like, <laughs> yeah. like somebody that was in a yep. car accident or somebody that got a gunshot wound. Oh, I'm right. sorry, don't do gunshot wounds. Yep. And I actually said that. 
I said that to him. I said, if this woman would have been in a car accident, had her arm cut off and she was bleeding to death, you would take her through your doors and you would give her blood. But because a baby came out of her vagina and she's bleeding out right now, you will not take her in. It, it there, there's no, I don't care and where you are. And his response was, we don't right. do birth. We don't do birth. That was the, that's all he kept saying over and over again. And I always say that I love hospitals. I love hospitals for when we need them. I love the life-saving support that they can give when we need them, which is few and far between as we all know in birth. Um, but when we need a hospital and we go there and they tell us that we can't even walk through their door, like what world are we living in? You know, this is third world country stuff. This, I mean, literally, I thought, I thought, I thought there's a, yeah, I thought Imtala says that that's a federal law. Yes. They can't yes, refuse is. care to anybody. Yep. No, they can't. So they're they more will. scared of their administrator. They're more scared of uh, of that than they are of, of they they feel protected from from federal law or from a lawsuit more so than they feel like they need to take care of the of the woman who's bleeding. This yep. is insane. Yep. And like I tell people this and they just can't believe it. And I say the only other place I've experienced being denied entrance into a hospital was Haiti. A third, you know, third world developing country. Oh, but then, the you, only... then I think you could get in if you paid them money. Uh, it depends. It depends on if they have staff, if they have medication, what that's they have what going heard, on. That's what I heard when I yeah. was there. You guys went to get somebody out of the hospital and you had to give some money to somebody or to, to get them out. Yeah. But... I guess that's different than getting in. It's, you have to pay to get out. You can't, you don't have to pay to get in. It's pretty funny. Sometimes you have to pay to get out and sometimes you have to pay to get in. Yeah. It's, it's so if you had rolled up to that hospital and just brought that woman in, you, you really believe that they would have, I mean, I, because you were calling ahead of time and I've had that experience where I call ahead of time. And they're like, I think you should go somewhere else. I think, you know, we're full or whatever. And I know that if we rolled up, they were going to have to take us. Do you feel like they really would have turned you away? Um, I can't say for sure at that hospital, but I know I did another birth in International Falls, which their hospital doesn't do birth as well, but the mom wanted to be transported to that hospital. She knew they weren't going to take her, but she said, I want to go there anyway. She thought that she could get pain medication and have the baby at the hospital. That was her only reason for wanting to go in. They took her in, they doped her up with fentanyl, put her in the ambulance and drove her an hour and a half to the closest hospital that would do birth. So they did take her, but they yeah. just loaded her in the ambulance and took her off. Why, so. why, why, why did the ambulance not just go to that hospital? Did they radio ahead and decide to go to the airport because the I hospital have, told them not to come? I honestly, I think it's one of those things where it's probably a money insurance thing. We get more money for life lighting people than we do anything because if we would have left her house and gone straight to the other hospital that I had recommended, we would have been there 30 minutes sooner because we drove 20 minutes in the opposite direction to go to this hospital that doesn't do birth anymore versus just going straight to the other hospital. But that was their protocol. Their protocol was we go to this hospital. And so that's what they did. So can I, um, can I ask you what um, the laws are in Minnesota in terms of midwifery licensure and traditional midwifery and what you can carry and what you can't or. Yep. Um, so in Minnesota, it's, it's basically, um, a legal, so you don't have to be a licensed midwife. Um, in order to be a licensed midwife, you have to be a CPM, even though the law doesn't recognize you as a CPM, they call you a traditional midwife, but they say you're a traditional midwife who has to have their CPM who then has to be licensed. Um, and once you're licensed, you can order medications. Um, but 
recently, uh, the legislature is trying to take that away from licensed midwives and make it so that they cannot order medication. They have to go through a physician in order to get it. Mm. It has not passed yet, but that's what they're pushing for. Yeah. So traditional midwifery is, you know, legal or illegal, however you want to look at it um, in the state of Minnesota. So because you are, they consider you traditional midwife as a CPM and then you get a license. But for you in particular, you're a traditional midwife who's unlicensed in a state that it's illegal. Is that correct? correct? Yes. Okay. And are you, as a traditional midwife, are you allowed to carry medications? Um, it's a gray area. <laughs> it's a very gray area. So it's she not. Treat, she, treat, she treats women, not the law. And the reason that I'm asking these really specific questions, one, because I'm interested. So I'm, I'm interested in moving to Oregon and in Oregon, you can be licensed or unlicensed. Mm -hmm. And if you're un, if you choose to be unlicensed, you cannot carry any medications, no medical equipment, none of that. So, yep. you know, and because of, um, this project that I'm working on the bridge midwives project, which is about traditional midwifery. I'm having a lot of women who are interested in being unlicensed, who are coming to me and asking me questions about how to do it. And because there's no path, it's not, it's not like, this is what you do to become an unlicensed midwife. It's more yeah. like the rebellious ones like yourself who are saying, <laughs> I mean, you are right. You're yeah, saying, yeah. and I, I'm not going to work for the law. So you're basically saying, I'm willing to take this risk because this is the right thing. I believe that this is the right thing and this is my path. Um, I think it's really hard to know how to guide these women besides just saying, follow your heart and you're going to know what to do, but there's no legal way of protecting ourselves in no. those kinds of situations. And I've talked to several traditional midwives throughout my time, you know, while I was in school. And even recently, I have a very new dear friend. We were instant best friends, met her um, in my international midwifery class that I was doing in Pennsylvania. And she brought up the same thing that I've heard from so many traditional midwives is you either carry the drugs illegally or in some states illegally. And you give them to your clients when the herbs aren't working and all the other things and you save their life. Or they die under your care. So either we have a client that we gave this medication to and, you know, God forbid the hospital finds out or the state finds out and they want to nail you to the wall. Great. But you saved their life and you can defend yourself in that area. Or you don't carry the medication and you have a woman die and you're prosecuted and nailed to the wall anyway. So you have to pick like which, which one is it going to be? As a traditional midwife, you're either getting nailed to the wall for watching them die or you're getting nailed to the wall for saving, saving them. their life. Right. And yeah. so... That well, was this, just the this just points out more. Decide. This just points out more of the absurdity because when you said that the, the Minnesota is trying to now change the law so that that you you know even if you're a uh, a licensed midwife that you have to get like permission or, or the prescribed by a doctor is that what you said something about the drugs and and this is just more absurdity. You are taking a system that's broken and doctors who don't know how to take care of normal healthy people and you are giving them more influence and power and you're giving it to the wrong people it's yeah. it's a system that is showing itself over and over and over to be broken mm -hmm. and it's it's still being fed by the people in in academic power and who lobby the legislatures to tell them that this is what's going on and the legislatures are so i you know i don't mean this in pejorative way but they're so stupid that they believe everything they're being told by academia 
not looking at the, the data about how badly hospitals are doing in the United States and other countries as well. Um, yeah. Scotland, and for instance, let's talk about they think that they're they're doing a service like these doctors know so much more and you know doctors are smart they're brilliant right i love them but they they think that they're these doctors are going to be an overseer right like that they're going to be able to say yes you know you're capable of having this medication and doing all these things and doing home birth and we're going to give you the medication there is one doctor in my area of the two hours that I serve that is home birth friendly. All the other doctors are not home birth friendly. They are not going to prescribe us life-saving medications for our clients. They will not do it. So good luck finding a doctor who's going to give you that, that prescription for those medications. It's yeah. yeah it was, it was like when we talked to Pamela Hunt from the, the farm, she said that, you know, that they need to collaborate with a physician. Like if they're going to have a breech birth, they need a physician to just say that that's okay to have a breech birth. It's not a collaboration. She said it's not permission. She called it a collaboration. But the truth is, is that finding a physician who's going to tell you that, yeah, it's okay for your baby to be born breech at home is almost impossible. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And really that's what in California, when ahead, we changed, that's what happened in California when we changed our laws. So prior to 2014, we had to have doctor supervision in order to practice but no one would supervise us. So all of the licensed midwives were basically practicing illegally. And because before we had licensure, midwives were also being prosecuted and going to jail and you know all of that stuff. There were a lot of midwives who were really fearful because they had seen their sisters and their friends losing their, you know, losing their livelihood and, and, and serving jail time and all of that. Um, and so they pushed to get that removed and then they just limited our scope anyways and said, we couldn't do twins. We couldn't do breaches. We could only do 37 to 42 weeks. And that's really frustrating because prior to that midwives were able to make their own decisions about what was safe and what wasn't safe because we know normal, <laughs> you yeah. know? Yeah. It's true. It's true. I mean, it's one of the reasons that I'm part of Dr. Stu's collaborative program, because I mean, there's, it's, you are my lifeline. You've, I've called you several times and you've helped me in a pinch, just kind of even, even when I just need to talk through things like, okay, this is just, this isn't making much sense to me. Let's have a conversation and you know, it's fabulous. So. Yeah. yeah so we, 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 we talked a little yesterday, we were talking a little bit about what's going on in June and you wanted you you're thinking about having like a twin breach indigenous midwife conference different than the one that was just in Louisville in some ways because it's a different clientele serving Canada North and South Dakota Minnesota and anybody from anybody who, who wants to come and see some beautiful parts of the country um and then as we were talking about that yesterday and we got into talking a little bit about twins you started to tell me the story that I think fits in with the topic that we're discussing now of, of, you know, are we supposed to rely on physicians to give us a hand in something that they are just not competent in? And you told the story of the woman with the twins and you wanna, uh, you, I, I think it's worth bringing it up. Bliss has not heard it and I think it's worth bringing it up because I've thought about it since yesterday and I've got some insights I wanna talk about after. Yeah, are we talking about the one who was forced into the C-section? Okay. Um, there are other bad ones too. Well, <laughs> well, there was two. I, 
two sets of twins I was talking to you about. Um, that one that you're mentioning was not my client. It was another midwife. Um, I was on backup for them. I was supposed to be going to the birth uh, to help them as an assistant because we always like to have more midwives when there's twins. And um, she wound up developing preeclampsia and had to be transferred to the hospital. And at the hospital, they told her, oh yeah, absolutely. You can have your babies vaginally. But if the second one, so the first one was presenting um, cephalic head down, second one was breech. And they said, if the second baby doesn't flip, then we're going to be doing a C-section or we'll possibly try to turn your baby. Um, and first baby was born vaginally very quickly. Um, the second baby um, wound up staying breech. They didn't even try to turn her baby. They instantly told her that she had to have a C-section and she was arguing with them. Her husband was arguing with them. Their midwife was in the room arguing with them. They brought her the consent papers. She wrote on the consent papers. I do not comply. I do not consent. I do not want this C-section. They're forcing me into this C-section. She screamed the entire way into the OR. Her husband called 911 and they knocked her out and did the C-section without her permission. Wow. Um, and she is now, from what I understand, in the process of suing the hospital. And I've heard some buzz on the streets that there were three other women who came forward who were also from the same hospital forced into having a C-section that they did not consent to. So you just had a vaginal baby. Everything is gushy, mushy, beautiful, ready to have your second baby. And because those doctors couldn't wrap their head around a breech baby coming vaginally, they forced her into doing something that she didn't want to do. And in any other scenario where our vaginas are involved, that would have been considered rape. And these people would be spending time in jail. But for some reason, we just think it's normal to do this to women. And I, I, this is one of the reasons why, I mean, we're getting phone calls. The midwives in the Northern area are getting phone calls from all these women who are having twins, who are having um, breech babies are diagnosed at the end. And we're getting calls. You know, there's nobody in this area that will support me. I was planning on having a, a hospital birth or even some that were planning on having a home birth, but their midwives aren't comfortable doing this. And we are getting these phone calls as rural midwives from these women saying, help us. We, we, we don't want this C-section. We don't want to be forced into doing something that... Um, we don't want to do. So that's part of the reason why I want to do this conference, because I believe that more midwives need to be trained in this because there has definitely been a shift. Um, I think we've all felt this shift and women are waking up more than women, men are waking up too, but in the birthing world in particular, like they're waking up, they're realizing this sucks. <laughs> I mean, the trauma that these women are experiencing is just beyond you know and I'm one of them I I had that happen to me and it took me a long time to and I still there's still times when it comes up you know but um so anyway that that's that's one of the reasons I want to do this twin breach um I want you know in our area we have we're surrounded by six different indigenous tribal communities we have Amish Mennonite um Russian Orthodox your standard English <laughs> I mean we're just surrounded our culture is very vast here um and so I really want to wrap in 
the traditional midwives, the indigenous midwives, but, you know, I still want to bring in, you know, Dr. Stu, we love you as an OBGYN doing the things that you're doing out in the community. So we want to have a vast variety of people coming in to teach things on, you know, twins and breach, but then also talking about how do we keep women out of the hospital and not just alive, but thriving in these rural communities and these maternity care deserts that we're serving. Yeah, I think before, it's really, I, I, go ahead, Liz, you go, you go first, because I'm going to get, I'm going to go off on a tangent. So you go first. Oh, I just was saying, I, I'm excited about what you want to put together, Rebecca. I think that's really important. And I just, I'm, I acknowledge your courage and um, the passion of following through and doing things that can really make a difference rather than just talking about what's wrong. You're looking at ways to be part of the solution. And I just want to acknowledge you for that. Yeah, I'm, yeah, it's just for me, sorry, I just want to add one more thing. You know, we're living in a community where um, I did a lot of anti-trafficking work, anti-sex trafficking work in particular before I became a midwife. And I'm dealing with women in this area, especially in the indigenous community, they're trafficked at a higher rate than any other population, right? And we're talking about these women coming into birth with those traumas and they're not being respected in the hospital. A lot of them are having their babies taken away for different reasons. And so that's part of the reason why we need to bring birth back into the home. And it's part of the reason why we need more midwives. So I think, I think that has to be said as well is that we're dealing with more than just birth trauma. We're dealing with sex trauma. We're dealing with everything that comes. It, it just, it's all wrapped together. Yeah. Agreed. Okay, Stu. Okay, so you're right. We need more skilled midwives. Um, we need, uh, you know, I, I, I'm almost giving up on, on obstetricians. Uh, I've gotten to the point where I've given up on the medical model that, that it's not fixable. And, and I'm really giving up on obstetricians. And, I, and I'm thinking that as it, it will, they'll self-implode because they're going to make the, themselves obsolete by the fact that they're not teaching the skills that you that you have and you want it to spread like in this conference and you you told a story yesterday also about uh some minneapolis midwives who were taking care of a set of twins that were an hour and a half away from them and they decided at around 35 weeks eh, we don't want to drive that far was that was that do i have that story partially correct um they told her at 35 weeks that they decided that she was too far from a hospital and she lived 30 minutes from the closest hospital that did birth and they decided that that was just going to be too far for them they cared for her from the time she peed on that stick until 35 weeks she paid them in full and then they decided sorry we're not comfortable with this anymore and that's but when we took they them that all along where she lived and that she was 30 minutes from the hospital Correct. so what do you think the real reason was do you think and they honestly, just didn't want to deal with her or with her I, twins I don't know because from the time she was 30 or 31 weeks, they had her doing biophysical profiles every single week. So she had five of them in a row and everything was normal. Everything. Um, her, the first baby was head down. The second baby was breech. They were both head down at one point and then the one flipped to breech. And that had happened, I think around 34 weeks. They saw her at the 35 week appointment. And that's when they dumped her. Yeah, see, I think that that's what's that what was going on there, and this brings me to two points that I want to make. One is made many times before, and it's also we make it in our in our uh, twin paper, which hopefully is currently still at the publisher, but it's it's we're, we're making progress on that. Um, is that if more more than more more than fifty percent of women who have twins, one of the twins is going to be breech. Sometimes it's both twins, but at least fifty percent of the time. So 
if you find out that you're having twins at 10 weeks or 12 weeks and your doctor is not comfortable with breech birth, that doctor should not be taking care of you at all. That midwife should not be taking care of you at all during your pregnancy because that person is not skilled in twin delivery. And to hope that your babies go head down, head down, that you might get a vaginal delivery. But if the baby B turns upside down after A comes out, that you're going to be forced to, you know, taking screaming to the operating room, like the poor woman you described earlier, um, then, then you as a consumer need to just not be seen by these people. You need to ask these people right off the bat and you need to embarrass them if you have to. You can even say to them, why, why, would, you, why would you take care of me if you don't know how to take care of more than half of us who have, who have twins? Ask these questions of them. But getting yeah. back, and, and then getting back to the, the story of the four C-section, which all of us think is, was a criminal act. And I'm not exactly sure why the DA isn't doesn't get involved in something like that. You can sue them civilly and they'll probably you'll probably lose because they'll just say it was for the safety of the baby and they'll argue that and and you know they they're big and you're small and they'll circle their wagons. This is what they do all the time. But after that, when you told me that story yesterday, I asked you a question about what's the legality of abortion in Minnesota. Mm-hmm. Told me they just passed a law in Minnesota that you can abort a baby up until the time of birth. Is that correct? Correct. Okay. So if this woman had just said to those people, I've decided I want to, I don't want my baby to live. Then they would have let her deliver vaginally. Mm-hmm. Uh, are you understanding what I'm saying? I do. I understand what you're saying. It's absurd. Mm-hmm. It's absurd. Yeah, on one hand, if, if you want to terminate your pregnancy, you're okay to do that. But if you want the baby to live, we're going to do an emergency C-section to save your baby. It, 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 you know, I, maybe my brain is seeing this differently. I don't, I, I think I get enough support from my listeners to understand that there's some absurdity, some dichotomy here that makes no sense whatsoever. Well, well you and never force anyone to have any kind of surgery, like right. out of childbirth, like that, like that. Any other situation, unless they were like not mentally stable or they were unconscious or something, would you be able to get permission to do surgery on someone without their consent? So this right. goes back to, to women's rights. Like, right, but if she just came, if she came in with a singleton breech pregnancy and said, you know what, I, I, I've just decided I, I don't want my baby to live. Okay, I don't want this baby. They wouldn't have sectioned her for it. Well, right. And even above and beyond all of that is that is, you know, the whole we're going to save your baby. You don't know what you're talking about. That that's a matter of an opinion of an of a physician. Right. So they think it's a wrong wrong opinion. It's a wrong opinion. Yes, exactly. They think that they know best. They think they're playing God, essentially. And so they're going to trump what the woman feels, what the woman wants, because they think that they know best. And that's wrong because like bliss, like what you're saying, any other thing, if I, if I had a tumor growing inside my brain and I did not want to have surgery on that, that doctor could tell me that I was an absolute moron and I'm going to die and it's the wrong thing to do. But you want to know what? Your opinion doesn't matter. This is my life. This is my body. And I'm going to choose how and when I'm going to do what I'm going to do. And if I die, then I die. Right. So if I have that option with a tumor that's growing in my brain, I have the same option on how I'm going to birth my baby. And you want to know what? 
working in the Amish communities, and I don't even care who you are or what, what community you're in, but in the Amish community in particular, you know, they're very life and death. They go hand in hand. It doesn't even matter if we listen to the best physician and they say this cesarean section is going to save your baby and we need to do it. That baby could still die. That baby, they, you know, and not only that, but the mother could die. So it doesn't matter what their opinions are. There's a risk for every single thing. And the mother is the one who gets to decide what that risk is and what she wants to take. Because it doesn't matter. That, what that's that's always true. That's always true. But it's even worse in this situation because they're giving her advice that's completely skewed because they're incompetent. Correct. Correct. Right. <laughs> they're skewing her down a path simply because they don't know what to do. Yes, which I, I want to know how these surgeons can perform these miraculous surgeries. And a lot of them are doing it with, you know, even machines, let's say that are laparoscopically and all these things. And I just, it blows my mind what they're able to do, but you can't do the maneuvers for a vaginal breech birth. Can um, Yeah, they can. Absolutely. They can. They just refuse to learn. And it is the easiest thing to learn. You can learn all the body parts all the nervous system, you can learn everything like that and you can work around it and you can do brain surgeries, but you just can't figure out how to do vaginal breech birth. Right. I mean, I just, and, and I the just can't wrap my head around it. No, but, and, and then the hospitals <laughs> give them privileges to be obstetricians. Yeah. So the hospital is actually failing their community. Yes. By allowing yes, these exactly. doctors on staff who don't know how to do things that happen three, four, five, six percent of the time, if you're talking about breaches and twins, yeah. which is a 6% of all births are breaches and twins. And actually how many of those actually need maneuvers? Right. Right. Maybe, yeah. maybe, a, th maybe a third. Depend it depends, but, but yeah. Maybe. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But it's also important to, it's obviously an important skill of no know, knowing when not to put your hands on. So you, I right. mean, you need the skill you need this and it's really easy. People can learn it in a one or two day seminar. They can take Breach Without Borders course. They can take our, our reteach breach course and they, and they could learn it. And we could go around and teach residents like we did in Chicago um, at Northwestern. We could go around and do that. And we would, you know, we're not going to get wealthy doing it. We'd be happy to do it. Um, but they don't want to, they don't want to learn. And, 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 and I want to, if I can go off on a tangent for a second, I did a little bit of homework on something that I thought would be really interesting because of our, I knew you were coming on today. And US News and World Report does an annual thing where they um, look at hospital rankings and they rank them by a bunch of different categories and they, and, and they do, uh, so I looked at the obstetrical rankings mm -hmm. for hospitals. And there's about 4,500 hospitals in the country and, and, and pretty much all of them are listed there. You can go through and you can find it, but you might, you know, you might have to, go through 4,272 to find Park Rabbits Hospital um, on, the, on the list, but, you know, naming them by name. But the number one hospital in the country for obstetrics right now and, and consistently is Brigham and Women's Hospital in Massachusetts, um, Boston, I think. And um, what's interesting about that is they got a score of 100 out of 100, which is a perfect score. But I looked at their numbers and their numbers are this, their, their, their C-section rate for first time moms is somewhere around 26%. The um, newborn complication rate nationwide, the average uh, hospital admission uh, problem is 3.2% and theirs was about 3.6%. So a little bit higher than the national average. 
44.9% of their babies were uh, exclusively breastfeeding during their hospital stay. So 55.1% were not, okay? And they're a pregnant patient who previously had a C-section may attempt to attempt a VBAC and their VBAC success rate was 20.6%. Ooh, <laughs> that's not so good. So this is number one hospital in the country for obstetrics. So then I just said, well, let me see what Cedars-Sinai is doing. Because that's my alma mater. And Cedars-Sinai was number seven. Not bad, number seven. They had a ranking of 78.4. So a big drop from 100. All right. But their numbers are better than Brigham's. So let's look at their numbers. So uh, first-time moms with a C-section rate was... 23.9%. So there's a little bit lower than Brigham's primary C-section rate. This is for uh, uh, primary low-risk mothers. This isn't their overall C-section rate, but it's just they're looking at first-time moms uh, without problems. Their newborn complication rate was the same as Brigham's, about 3.6, 3.7% of babies end up with complications. They have a 55% success rate with breastfeeding in the hospital. So that's better than 45 44, 40, whatever it is, 49. And then their VBAC rate is 21.3%. So that's better than 20 whatever percent. Yeah. Yet, yet um, oh, and their episiotomy rate is less than 5%, both of those hospitals. So that's the rating for those two hospitals. So I said to myself, well, why is Cedars so much worse than Brigham when they're all their numbers are better? So I went, I, I dug a deep dive to look at, to figure out how does New, US News and World Report rate hospitals. And 45% is based on patient outcomes. And it's very complicated. And it's probably, it's I don't think you could buy your way to the top. So I don't think it's about who's sponsoring US News and World Report, who's buying ads. So 45% is based on patient outcomes, 5% based on, only 5% is based on patient experience. So surveying patients, only 5% of the weight. Ex other experts in the field ranking their top five hospitals, carried 15% of the weight. Other care-related indicators, which is nurse staffing, patient volume, was 35% of the weight. So for whatever reason, Brigham comes out on top with that. Can I compare something that I think might be fun? Yeah, I'm, I've got more to go, but yeah, I want you to interrupt, so go ahead. Okay, so I went back to look at what the farm statistics are, who have been in practice for 50 years. Um, and transports to the hospital, 5.2%. Cesareans, 1.7%. Um, postpartum hemorrhage, 1.7%. Vaginal birth after cesarean success rate, 96.8%. Intact perineum, 687 They don't even mention doing any kind of episiotomy, uh, by the way. Maternal mortality and morbidity, zero. So, you know, you we're talking about this, we're comparing um, things that are all failing, right? And putting them at the top, but we're not even looking at like, you can't, you can't even compare what these hospitals are doing compared to what midwives are. Yeah, you're and not going to get a corporate entity like US News and World Report to, 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 to look at that sort of thing. They're not going to do it. I think good to look at midwife statistics compared to the hospital because then you can go like wait <laughs> yep. we you know 
we have 50 years of history to tell us that midwifery care has the potential of being able to s serve people in this way. So, and I know that, you know, people who go to hospitals sometimes really do need hospitals. And so. Well, but you look at, you look at their, their, their C-section rate that they're quoting are for, are for um, first time low risk pregnancies at yeah. term, at term. And they're yeah. around 23, 24%. Right. And, and yeah. the farms was at 2%. We're going to talk a little bit about our sponsor, Needed. We love them. They have an amazing company. And you know what, you guys? Your prenatal nutrition isn't cutting it. So they redesigned the prenatal vitamin for you to be optimally nourished. They came out with a new product. I mean, I just feel like every time I turn around, they've got a new amazing product. And this one is an immune support. It's easy to take delicious elderberry powder to support optimal immune health for the whole family. You know, I was hiking the other day and I saw an elderberry bush. You recognized it? Of course not. <laughs> no. Really impressed. No, but the midwife I was with recognized it right away. 70% um, of the immune system resides in the gut. So comprehensive support is needed. Most immune support products aren't designed for all ages and stages. Their immune support is safe and effective for the whole family kids, pregnant, and nursing moms included. So that is perfect for our followers. Yeah, so go to their website at uh, thisisneeded.com and look through their products. I mean, not only do they have a prenatal vitamin, uh, which we recommend, but they have sleep and relaxation support, stress support, hydration support, collagen, a pre and probiotic, which I think is a good thing um, yeah. for a lot of us to be taking, yeah. especially if you have immune issues or if you uh, had recently taken antibiotics or something like that. They have a whole thing for men, so you can men can look at that at their website as well. So again, we love their we love their sponsor. And what makes them different is optimal nutrient forms, dosages that help you thrive, easy to take at all stages of pregnancy. They were formulated with practitioners, and they're recommended by over three thousand women health experts, just like us. And I was going to say that. <laughs> <laughs> I stole your. You stole it. No. Okay. So go to thisisneeded.com. Just spell it out and use the code birthing instincts to get 20% off your first order. This is needed.com. I think you get 20% off every order, but just, mm -hmm. just uh, use the code word birthing instincts at this is needed.com. Thanks, needed. Thank you. So, Bliss, I wanted to do a little research. So I, I looked up Santa Barbara Cottage Hospital. <laughs> <laughs> Believe it or not, it's 96th in the country. Out of how out of four thousand? Out of several, yeah, out of thousands. Okay. Mm -hmm. And they have a rating of fifty point two. Mm -hmm. So you can imagine when you get down to a thousand or two. <laughs> but what's interesting about Cottage Hospital is they they um but Cottage Hospital did not participate in the survey. So it didn't participate in the survey. How come it was ranked ninety-sixth? I have no idea. <laughs> So this is just another talking about absurdities today. This is another absurdity of like these rankings, like LA's top physicians. How do, how does how do who decides on the LA's top physicians? It's usually the physicians of the uh, reporters writing the story are the LA's top physicians. And how do they become ninety six when they didn't participate in the survey? So we have no idea what their statistics are. So then on, on behalf of Rebecca, I went to Minnesota and I found that the top Minnesota hospital was Minnesota Fairview Southdale, which is in Edina. <laughs> I, know it, I know it well. And they were number 128. So the top hospital in Minnesota is the 128th best hospital in the country, according to US News and World Report. And they had a ranking of 
And then um, the University of Minnesota, my alma mater was three places worse at number 131. And they had a ranking of um, 44.0. And they had a C-section rate and primeps of over 30%. They had a newborn complication rate, the same as Cedars and Brigham. They had 69.2% of their mothers were able to breastfeed for the first two days. Uh, so that's better. And they had a 21.8% VBEC rate, which is better than, than Cedars and better than Brigham. And yet sucks terribly. So I brought these things up because we've been talking sort of today about whether it's medical care in hospitals in Scotland under the National Health Service in Scotland, which you, you didn't hear, Rebecca, or whether it's the hospitals in Minnesota or whether what's going on in Santa Barbara or other places. Um, and we're, we're seeing that that hospitals essentially are are not there when we need them. They do great things. And nobody doubts that, but I don't think it offsets the things that they don't do. <laughs> That's the point I'm trying to make. Um, you know, where are they when they need when 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 somebody says, "Well, we don't do birth here, so you can't bring a bleeding woman in," mm -hmm. or "I refuse a C-section while well, you're having one anyway." Yep, because we're not competent, um, and we're and the and the administration and administrative people are defending this system. And they're pouring more money into this system and they're making small hospitals close because they can't they can't meet the ACOG stupid guideline or because the, it's financially unviable for them um, to keep going because insurance pays so so poorly and liability is so high. And doctors don't do things because they're afraid of being sued more than they're afraid of saving someone's life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's tragic. Yeah, do no harm. Yeah, I, I, I'm sorry I ranted there, but uh, but I I'm not sorry actually. <laughs> <laughs> well, Rebecca, this was such an amazing, spontaneous conversation. I'm so glad that Dr. Stu um, suggested that you come on because I think that it's really interesting to see what's happening in your area and the work that you're doing. It's really inspiring to remind us that we can take some of the power back for these women by stepping up and being courageous to do the work to serve them. So thank you for the work you do. And if, yeah. and if people, if people want to contribute or, or volunteer for mama baby Haiti, uh, how do, how, how do they, can you give us a little information about how they might reach out? Yeah, I mean, one of the biggest things that Mama Baby needs right now is funding. So they're trying to finish up their birth center right now in Capation. And um, things in Haiti are more complicated now than they ever have been. Um, materials are extremely expensive. There's a food shortage on the island. There, There's so much going on in Haiti. I couldn't even, it's a whole podcast on its own, but uh, Mama Baby right now really needs the funding. So anybody can go to mamababyhaiti.org, donate there. Um, right now there aren't a lot of trips going there because of the food shortage. Um, but that, you know, I will lead another trip. If anybody's interested, they can either contact mama baby or they can contact me directly. Um, I absolutely love Haiti. I love what the Haitian midwives are doing there. I love their hearts. Um, I think everybody should have a chance to go and see what's happening there and really experience, you know, the news is going to tell you that Haiti is the worst place to go. You're going to die. And it is exactly the opposite. Um, Port-au-Prince is pretty complicated and 
yeah, you don't want to go there. A lot of Haitians don't even want to be there, but where mama baby is in cap is beautiful. I mean, Dr. Stu, you were there. Um, I'm sure you felt the love of everybody. It just, it's. Oh, the, the people are great. The-, the people are great, Rebecca. It's, it's the, it's the corruption in the, in the, in the culture and the, and the government and, uh, or lack yeah. of government or whatever they, the, it, nothing gets there. I mean, people, you, you don't have private businesses there. You don't have chain restaurants no. there or anything like that. Um, because no, no corporation wants to invest there because their investment will be taken away from them in, a, in an instant. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So, um, if you're interested in donating to mama baby, I know that they would be forever grateful. I know the Haitian midwives and the women there, mama baby doesn't charge for any of their services. The women come there for prenatal birth, postpartum breastfeeding. It's all free for them. Um, they're saving lives left and right. So I know that they would be forever grateful for donations. If you're interested in going on a trip, you can either contact me or mama baby directly. Um, and we'll set something up. Great. So, and then and then uh, we'll keep uh, uh, the word coming out of as things develop for June of next year. Uh, yeah. Are you going to come, Bliss? Oh, I don't know. I haven't planned June yet, but <laughs> I don't have any babies scheduled yet. So it's quite possible. Well, I sent you an email. I asked if you wanted to be one of the speakers. Um, one of my very, very dear midwife friends uh, met you at the last conference that Nathan Riley did. She was the one with the foot hanging out, the leg hanging out. Yeah. Yes, yes. So yeah. I was at that I was at that birth with her and she just absolutely loved you. She loved your whole spirit and like the way that you were bringing people together and she was telling stories and she's like, "Are you going to have Bliss come?" and I said, "I would love to have Bliss come." So let's see what we <laughs> Yeah, and I would just say from my my experience in life that uh, up northern Minnesota in June is beautiful. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So it it would be great to see all of you there. I'm going to go. Great. Yeah, I know. Um, right now, I think we have Nicole Morales just emailed me and said that she's willing to head out. And I know you're coming. I think um, Dr. Hayes is going to do his best. And then Rhonda Grantham, who is an Indigenous midwife from Washington, is coming. And then um, I have several other emails out to other midwives, um, not just in the United States, but in other countries. So I'm hoping that we can get some really good people showing up. So Great. Awesome. Well, thanks again for being here today. Um, <laughs> um, thank you so much for sharing all of your wisdom. Stu, thanks for um, putting this together. And um, we'll put some things in the show notes to support what you're up to and, and Mama Haiti. And um, until next time. Yeah. Thank you, guys. Bless yeah. you all. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and good middle of the night. (laughs) Good night. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Birthing Instincts podcast. We know that we all lead busy lives, so we are extremely grateful that you give us an hour of your time each week. If you enjoyed this episode, please share. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast for the latest updates and reviews. To help others join us, you can find Dr. Stu at Birthing Instincts and Bliss at Birthing Bliss Midwifery on Instagram. 